And now we move on to the approaches to managing treatment-naive hepatitis C virus-infected patients from Dr. Wiles, who, as you know, is Associate Professor from San Diego in Infectious Disease, and this is going to be a case-based discussion, and he's going to try and answer some of the other questions that came up this morning. Right. I still have the questions from this morning, so those of you who had pertinent questions, we'll get to them here, hopefully, in the, in the case of in the course of the discussion. So let's start off with the patient. This is a 47-year-old black man, found to be HCV infected in the Army about 11 years ago. He comes in the office stating that he's heard about new therapies and um, wants to know what you think uh, about whether he should be treated or not. He doesn't drink alcohol. He's been vaccinated against hepatitis B and uh, hepatitis A. He's overweight with a BMI of 31, but otherwise his physical exam is normal. Um, some initial laboratory studies, so his ALT is 1.7 times the upper limit of normal, but his bilirubin is normal. There's a little echo here. Um, platelet count is 160,000, so the lower end of normal. He's got a pretty typical HCV RNA of 6 million. Uh, he's genotype 1A, which would be most common in uh, African Americans in particular. And he's HIV seronegative. So, what would you recommend now? Would you jump right in and treat him with peg ribavirin or with a PI? Would you get some more information first in your options up here, get an IL-28B, get an ultrasound and an AFP, do some sort of assessment of liver fibrosis, or just defer right now until uh, interferon-free therapies are available? So go ahead and make your choice. I think. Let's go one slide. There we go. Okay. Go ahead and enter your choices now. Whoa. Back. Forward. It's not going to happen. Okay. Just shout out what you'd like to do. No. Um, well, let's go through these answers in a second. Ooh, a restart. Oh, no, here we go. Okay, we got something. All right, so um, we've got at least a few that want nil 20 b and the majority want an assessment of liver fibrosis. If that's really reflected, that, that sounds good to me. So let's talk about this a little bit. Okay. Well, hey. Next slide. Here we go. So... Just briefly, I already alluded to this in this, the, this morning's talk, and we talked about different ethnic groups and their responses, and this is just a, a table from Andy Mears' uh, treatment study looking at specifically at African Americans and their rate of response. And what you can see here, again, this is genotype 1 disease treated with pegylate interferon and ribavirin, um, with blacks getting a sustained response of 19% versus 52% for genotype 1 disease in non-Hispanic whites. So again, really coming back to the first option, suggesting that pegylate interferon plus ribavirin therapy is probably not a great option for this slightly overweight African-American gentleman. And also, you saw this earlier this morning, just to reinforce, a lot of that treatment discrepancy is because of the prevalence of the favorable IL-28B alleles in uh, African-Americans. Uh, but you can see if they do have the favorable allele, they do well. But again, um, the proportion of the population that possesses is going to be homozygous for both those alleles is pretty low. And that largely explains that discrepancy seen in the New England Journal study. And this is the frequency again 
which, which again, we talked about this morning, but African Americans, the frequency of the C allele is much lower, um, with the range all the way up to Asian Americans, where it's the highest frequency of the C allele. So he decides he wants to have an IL-28B done, and at least one of you wanted an IL-28B test. So he's of the CT genotype, so um, probably not unexpected for an African American gentleman. Um, so you know that suggests he's not going to respond as well. And specifically, if you look at African Americans who possess a T allele, there you go. His response rate is probably something like 20% or so, um, given that New England Journal study. So again, peg ribavirin probably not a great option for this gentleman. So let's talk more about fibrosis staging. So Liver biopsy should be performed on patients with HCV to determine whether to start treatment now or to wait. Do you agree with that statement? Yes, no. Got music. Let's see a counter up. Polling close. Okay. Well, so most of you agree with that. I don't know how many responses we had in there, but um, most agree with getting um, some type of fibrosis assessment, in this case, liver biopsy, before deciding what to do. So and this is just kind of an overview, building on what uh, Dr. Cole was talking about in terms of liver staging, um, and we had some questions about. So liver biopsy is really the gold standard still, um, and most frequently used, I think, in the United States. Um, there, in addition to being gold standard, it can give you additional information so you can learn about other diseases that maybe weren't suspected. You can look at iron stores, you can look at steatosis on a liver biopsy. Um, and again, if, if you get a large enough piece, it's, it's really very accurate at staging liver disease, although um, sometimes you don't get as much as you'd like. Um, the cons of liver biopsy, it's invasive. Um, cost and availability may be limiting for some patients in some centers. Um, and you can have understaging, again, if you have a, a suboptimal biopsy. Um, kind of the minimal requirement should be um, when your pathologist reads this and report out, they should report hopefully the size of the specimen and the number of portal tracts they're using to make their assessments. Um, and that's critical to knowing how valid and, and how likely you are to have understaging. Um, other ways to um, do fibrosis staging, there are what I've kind of grouped into routine indices. So these are um, essentially equations that combine some of the routine laboratories you probably already have on most of your patients with hepatitis C, looking at things like ALT, platelet counts, um, and AST, and, and various ratios. And you can find these um, APRI and FIB4 are two of the most common. You can find the calculators usually online um, and plug in your patient's values, and it will give you a, uh, a value for these indices and, and generally give you an estimated fibrosis stage based on those indices. Um, the nice thing about these is, again, on most patients, we have the data to, to make these um, types of estimates. Um, and because they're on commonly obtained laboratory data, they're usually pretty cheap. Um, the problem is limited accuracy, um, area under the receiver operator curve somewhere around 0.7 to 0.85, and there are certain patient populations where there are probably further caveats. Um, if you have something about your patients that are, are for other reasons, deranging some of these um, indices or bilirubins, changing things like that, they may not be as accurate. Um, there are proprietary indices um, that are improved in terms of their accuracy, but they also are more costly. Um, they again have co-founders, so if you have a patient on Adizanivir that has a falsely elevated bilirubin, that's going to affect these non-invasive measures and the score they give you. Um, the most common would be the fibrosure here in the United States, it was called the serum marker test. And I'll show you in the slide, they're also okay if you want to know, do I have cirrhosis or do I have zero fibrosis, none. If you have a patient that's in between, they're not going to give you the granularity to distinguish between an F2 and an F3, say. So if, if that's important to you to know 
more specifically what your fibrosis stage is, these might not be the greatest approach. And then something else that um, we don't have here in the United States, at least not FDA approved right now, is transient elastography or the fiber scan. This is widely used in Europe. And it does have, again, improved accuracy, um, but it's not FDA approved here in the United States. It requires special equipment, so it's really not an option right now outside of a research setting. Uh, I think the other nice advantage to this is you can do it serially over time, which is, it's much easier to do that than it is with a liver biopsy, say. Um, so this is kind of the pros and cons, but I think what we do need is fibrosis staging. This is just what I was alluding to with the fibrosure, the non-invasive measurement. You can see all the overlap with the various stages of liver disease as designated by biopsy in the score for the fibrosure. So there's just a ton of overlap here. Um, as I mentioned, you're probably okay if you just want to know, do I have advanced fibrosis cirrhosis or do I have minimal to none? But again, you're not going to be able to tell the difference in these intermediary areas. And then transient elastography, similar in that there's some overlap in the middle, but you, see, you do see a little better separation again with F4 and F0. So um, kind of reflected in the better AUROCs as well. So transient elastography probably a little better. Um, you get a reading that's in kilopascals or a measure of the liver stiffness from the ultrasound. Again, not FDA approved right now in the United States. Um, so not really a viable clinical option, but certainly is used widely and you'll see it uh, from studies from Europe quite frequently. So you decided to forge ahead with a liver biopsy and you get a liver biopsy that shows here what is essentially is very minimal stage one fibrosis. There's a little bit of extra blue you can kind of appreciate emanating from the portal triads here. So maybe just the very earliest stages of minimal fibrosis, so stage one disease, so very early in the course. So based on that biopsy result, what would you recommend for this patient right now? African-American gentleman, overweight, IL-28B CT with minimal fibrosis on his liver biopsy. Okay, let's see what we have. Okay, so the majority, 66% say no therapy at this time. You're willing to, to recommend waiting for this patient. Nobody wants to do PEG and RIBA, good. And then a few um, would either try a predisinhibitor or maybe refer for a clinical trial. Um, so I like those answers. Let's just show you what the data is first, and then we'll talk a little bit more about why you might want to defer. So these are from the phase three studies, kind of the top line results for SBR rates um, for patients treated with telapavir plus pegylate interferon and ribavirin, the so-called advanced study. Um, and what you can see here overall, again, peg ribavirin for 48 weeks, the, the former standard of care, 44% SBR, and then telapavir given for either eight or 12 weeks in, in the setting of triple combination therapy with sustained response rates up to 75%. And then again, this race difference, if we break it out for the non-black population versus the black population, you do see a difference. Um, a lot of this is due to the IL-28B effect, but not all of it, um, with uh, what are primarily Caucasians approaching 80% SBR rates and uh, African-Americans about 60%. And you also see, again, a, a decrease in peg response in the African patients. This is the top-of-the-line data for Bocepivir from the SPRINT-2 study. Again, in combination with pegylate interferon and ribavirin, only genotype 1 patients who were treatment-naive, had never been treated before with interferon. Um, what we're showing here, a little different, in that in the blue bars are Bocepivir response-guided therapy. Um, so again, based on early virologic responses, there was not, these patients could shorten therapy, whereas in the group in red, got a fixed duration. Um, there was no RGT in that group. Again, you can see about an absolute um, 
30% almost increase in sustained responses over pegrovirin placebo. Um, and again, you see the separation between uh, non-black and black populations in terms of their overall responses, but again, still statistically significant better responses with the protease inhibitor on board. Now, here's the actual breakdown of the IL-28B status and how it impacts response rates. And I'll point out a couple things. So again, here's your IL-20B, and everybody remembers CC is the favorable genotype that would predict a better response to peg-related interferon, and in fact, that's what you see. The control arm, 64% with an SBR, was just peg and ribavirin. But you still do see a delta with the addition of the protease inhibitor, and now 90% of patients with CC genotype are achieving, achieving a sustained virologic response with the addition of telaprovir. Um, the other thing to point out is just the dramatic impact that the protease inhibitor has in patients who don't have a favorable IL-20AB genotype. Now you're seeing almost a 50% absolute increase in response rates for patients when you add in the protease inhibitor in those with unfavorable IL-20AB genotypes. Here's the corresponding data for SPRINT2. This is the Bocepravir data. Um, and the same type of thing. You see here, again, pegravivirin and CCs did very well in this trial, um, where this difference wasn't even statistically significant. Um, and then, but then again, for the unfavorable IL-20AB alleles, a large increase in responses if you add in the protease inhibitor. Now, the one thing that's not reflected here, which is something else to consider, is um, patients with the CC genotypes also are much more likely to get a shortened duration of therapy. So while peg, peg ribavirin looks good, almost all these patients, if, if it was a trial that allowed them to go to RGT, would have taken only 24 weeks of telaprovir with peg ribavirin as opposed to this group getting 48, and similarly 28 weeks of bocepravir in this group versus 48 of peg ribavirin. So there is a duration issue, which may be a critical thing for some patients as they're thinking about whether to initiate therapy or not. So I alluded to this with the, the morning introductory talk, but um, so we have a lot of baseline predictors of SVR. This is data with Bocepavir, but most of these predictors and trends hold true for Tilapavir as well. This was recently published in Gastroenterology by Fred Fordad from the SPRINT2 data. Um, and this is um, just looking at these baseline predictors and their odds ratio for SVR, even when you have Bocepavir on board. So if you have a low baseline HCVRNA, they're almost 12 times more likely to respond if you're below 4,000 if you give them triple therapy with Bocepavir. And again, IL-28B CCs do better than CTs. Having lack of cirrhosis, so having less liver fibrosis, they actually do respond better to treatment. Um, so four times uh, odds ratio for SVR. Genotype 1Bs do better than 1As. The concept we'll come back to. Um, we've talked plenty about race. And then again, for our gentleman here, he also has a BMI of 31. Um, so a lower BMI, they also tend to respond better. But again, with the protease inhibitor in the mix, all these predictive factors are not as strong as they were when we were talking about just pegylated interferon and ribavirin alone. So that sounds great. And why wouldn't we want to treat everybody then with a protease inhibitor? Well, I think it's because right now, remember, we still need to use them with interferon and ribavirin. And interferon and ribavirin are not easy to take if anybody's tried to give it to patients. And then you also have to remember when you're adding in telaprovir or bocepravir, you're adding in another medication. And essentially all medications have side effects and telaprovir and bocepravir. Uh, are no exception to that rule. Um, so here's the adverse event rates from the two um, phase three studies with telaprovir and bocepravir. And what you'll notice compared to the peg ribavirin placebo arms are increased rates of side effects, um, particularly with telaprovir, pruritus, rash, and anemia all went up by more than 10%. And rash is kind of um, the side effect that you may hear most about with telaprovir. So you can see here again, um, up to 50% of patients having itching, 40% uh, or so with developing rash or up to 40% and anemia very common as well and increased from pegravivirin. Similar story with bocepavir and particularly in regards to anemia. 
So you're going to see an, an, an additional gram to gram and a half drop in hemoglobin compared to a patient just treated with pegrabivirin alone. Um, dysgeusia or bad taste in the mouth is another frequent side effect that's noted with Losepiravir. So again, it's not um, uh, no free lunch here in, in the sense of uh, increased adverse events as well. So why, why might you want to wait? And this is, Dr. Osborne is going to talk about this in much more detail later in her talk. This is just a summary slide of kind of medications that are in phase two and three trials. And I'll just draw your attention over here to the SBR rates. These are the SBR rates in combination with pegribavirin on this slide. So you can see for most of these, we're talking now about 85% SBR rates up to 90%, generally with shorter durations of therapy. And you'll notice most of these medications are once or twice a day, as opposed to three times a day with Plavir and Bostepavir. And in general, they have better side effect profiles or better tolerated. Um, perhaps even more excitement, though, about interferon-free regimens. Um, the liver meeting coming up in a week is going to um, highlight a lot of these regimens. I'm really just showing you this as part of the rationale that I would have selected to wait in this patient is that we think there's going to be a lot of options and some of them available relatively soon that are going to allow us to treat many of our patients without interferon and ribavirin, without interferon, maybe without ribavirin, that's not clear, and avoid a lot of those side effects and treat patients possibly for very short durations, as little as 12 weeks and maybe still achieving very high cure rates. So there's a lot on the horizon and that's a reason I think in a patient with early fibrosis that it it may be in the patient's best interest to actually wait. So now we're going to switch things up a little bit on all of you. What if we got a liver biopsy that instead of minimal fibrosis showed this? So you'll see a lot more blue, and now you start to see these fibrous bands connecting portal triads, suggesting at least bridging fibrosis. So I think this was read out as stage 3 fibrosis or bridging fibrosis. Um, we don't have a big section here. You'd certainly hope that the pathologist had more because you can almost imagine some what would be regenerating nodules here. And if there's enough fibrosis, um, this is where, you know, if you just had this small section, you, this might even be early cirrhosis and could be even undercalled by the biopsy assessment by the pathologist if it's not an adequate specimen. So now what would you do if instead of F1, he's F3? Would your answer be the same? No therapy. And you can see the various choices of pegribavirin or PI. Okay, so now we see a switch in what people want to do, and most are ready to treat this gentleman um, with pegribavirin and tilaprevir or bocepravir, and someone will refer to a clinical trial, and I generally, uh, I think this is the right way to go. I think it's tough um, probably to hold off on therapy at this time, um, and certainly wouldn't want to use peg and riba. So let's go through this just a little bit more. So this is the impact of fibrosis stage on responses. Um, so in the advanced study with telaprevir again, um, we showed you the overall results where it was roughly uh, 70 or 75 percent, depending on the arm. This is just the 12-week telaprevir arms I'm showing you here. And the fibrosis goes from what would be F0 or F1, none to minimal, to kind of an F2, an F3, and an F4, or a cirrhotic. And what you see is this gradual decline in sustained response rates, both for pegylated interferon and ribavirin and for protease inhibitor add-on therapy, from a high of 80 to about 60 percent in more advanced fibrosis. So it's kind of, you know, this double-edged sword. We don't want to treat early ones, but they're the ones most likely to respond. When you get to later fibrosis, you don't really have a choice, but they don't quite respond quite as well. Um, similar study from the, from the SPRINT2 study. Um, here they kind of lump them together in the F0s to F2s, so no fibrosis to minimal or moderate. And then bridging fibrosis and cirrhosis, they also kind of lump together. But you'd still see this same, this kind of drop-off with more advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis 
in responses even to protease inhibitor-based therapies. Um, you'll notice also there's this discrepancy in the rate between response-guided therapy and a standard full 44-week course of bocephavir. And it was some of this data that led the FDA to make the recommendations about how you should treat cirrhotics and that you shouldn't use response-guided therapy in patients with cirrhosis. You should do a full course. Um, and this was some of the data, this 10% discrepancy that kind of led them down that path. Okay, so in particular for this patient, you, along with the patient, talk about side effects, talk about the, the way the regimens are administered, and decide to go with pegylated interferon, ribavirin, and telaprevir. He gets high-dose uh, ribavirin, 1,200 milligrams a day, weight-based. So at baseline, we'll just set the stage again. So now we're going with the patient has stage 3 fibrosis. He's a 1A with a 6 million viral load at baseline. You can see his CBC parameters here, and you can see his baseline liver function tests and um, synthetic function tests. So after four weeks of therapy, he comes back. He starts on April 1st. He comes back May 1st. He's tired, but otherwise seems to be tolerating therapy pretty well. His HCV RNA level has dropped from 6 million to undetectable at week four. The rest of his labs, his liver function tests have normalized. He's become anemic, as you would expect. His white count has also dropped, as we would expect, with interferon. Um, but his ANC is okay still, and his platelet count has also dropped rather predictably to 110,000. So then you have him come back at week four, and his hemoglobin's dropped a little bit more to 10.4, and you've dose-reduced his ribavirin. Dr. Peters is going to talk about adverse uh, effects of therapy and how to manage those. Um, his white count's still holding in, platelets are fine, and his HCV RNA remains undetectable. So he's been HCV RNA undetectable now at week four and week 12 on telaprevir. So what would you do at this point? How would you manage him? Um, would you keep going with telaprevir through week 24? You can read the rest of the options and, and put in your answers. Let's see, you had to read fast probably on that one, I think. So um, some of you wanted to continue peg ribavirin and telaprevir through week 24 and then stop, and the rest here that had quick fingers got in, stop telaprevir at week 12 and continue peg ribavirin through week 24. All right. Well, let's talk about what you should have done. First, this is the um, data from Ken Sherman, the uh, Illuminate study that actually was a randomized controlled trial to look at response-guided therapy and make sure that by stopping early you weren't missing some SVRs. And so in this study, 65% of the patients were eligible. They had an extended rapid virologic response, which again with telaprevir, we're talking about negative at week four and maintained through week 12. Um, undetectable. I always say negative. It should be undetectable, okay? And that's a discrepancy we can talk about. And then overall, you can see 72% sustained response rate. So the patients who attained an ERVR and were randomized to getting 24 weeks, 92% were cured. Those who got an ERVR and were randomized to go the full 48 weeks regardless, had an 88% SVR. So there was no difference between the two groups, essentially just showing that it was valid to go ahead and do shortened response-guided therapy. In other words, what they were concerned about was, is this 100% if you kept going in those people with ERVRs? And it wasn't. It looked the same. Um, so really validating the concept of doing um, response-guided therapy with telaprevir if you meet these milestones. So here is are these schema that I showed this morning a little bit. We'll kind of walk you through this. So let's start with the bottom telaprevir since this is how we treated our patient. So again, remember with telaprevir, 12 weeks is all the telaprevir they get. They don't go further. So in that previous answer, that's why that top answer was not correct because it said continue telaprevir through week 24. And that's not uh, the approach we use. We stop at week 12. Remember, he had made both of these milestones or these potential stopping points. He was undetectable week four, so we kept going. He was undetectable at week 12, so we kept going. 
And again, that's where he made the ERVR criteria for RGT, so he was undetectable at both those um, time points here. It says RNA detected, so he was not detected at either time point. So he would just get an additional 12 weeks of PEG and RIBA and then stop at week 24. And he was an F3. Remember, if he was an F4, you wouldn't have done that. You, probably, you would have treated him with a full 48 weeks of PEG RIBA. So it is a little bit of a, you know, how much do you believe your biopsy? Was he really F3? You know, and you kind of can use your intuition, your judgment, and see if you really believe that. If you didn't and were super conservative, you maybe went on to do the full 48-week of treatment. Bocepivir is dosed differently. Again, a PEG ribavirin lead-in to refresh everybody's memory, followed by adding bocepivir at week four. Uh, and then you continue bocepivir. Um, week eight is the first time point where you're starting to think about response-guided therapy. So if you're undetectable, um, so RNA not detected at week eight, you start down the response-guided therapy pathway where you essentially then complete a full 24 weeks of bocepivir or 28 weeks of PEG riba total and stop at that point. If you had a detectable RNA at week eight, um, you would come down to this arm, and then your first stopping time point would be at week 12, where you have to be less than 100 to keep going. If your RNA is over 100 at week 12, you would stop. Um, but because you had a detectable RNA here, you're going to continue your bocepivir out, assuming you make these undetected time point at week 24, um, to 36 and continue peg ribavirin for a full 48. So again, um, a little more complex. So for this guy, you kind of rolled the dice, and you continued through week 24, but then you stopped. He tolerated it well, his hemoglobin stabled out, and he remained undetectable at weeks 24 and again 24 weeks later. So he is an SGR and you've cured him. Oh, I guess that's it. See, Marion, I told you I wasn't going to go over. We even have time for questions. So um, I'll just mention the two that came up after the kind of introductory portion this morning. So one was a question about the PROVE 2 and PROVE 1 trials. Those were the phase two studies, smaller studies. Somebody noticed the discrepancy between the telaprevir, the triple therapy 12-week arm only, where um, in the PROVE-1 study, which was done in the United States, or primarily the United States, there was a much lower response rate in the PROVE-2 study um, with just 12 weeks. Um, obviously, the, the way it's FDA approved is to do 24 weeks of peg ribavirin with 12 of telaprevir, and part of that probably was from the PROVE. But I think what we'll say is their phase 2B studies, they were smaller in number. There were differences in the patient populations, particularly 1A and 1-2B um, prevalences in the European version versus the United States. So I don't know that much to make, but we don't, certainly don't do 12 weeks of pegylated interferon and ribavirin with telaprevir. We do a 24 weeks would be the shortest you'd go. Um, did the telaprevir and bocepivir trials exclude cirrhotics? I think we showed that with the, more, uh, the larger phase 3 trials. They didn't exclude them, but there weren't a whole lot in there either. Um, and they all had to be child's PUA, essentially, so no evidence of decompensation at any time in the past, and had to have pretty preserved synthetic function and platelet counts and things like that. And that's it from these questions. So the next one is, there's two about fibrosis. When do you use non-invasive tests versus liver biopsy? Yeah. And then let me tell you the second one so you can weave okay. it in. Um, the commercially available Fibrosure, which has a, a fibrosis F score and a necroinflammation mm -hmm. A score, are these validated and or important? Are they validated? Uh, I'm glad I'm standing next to Marion because when I say something that's wrong, she can pipe in because she's the <laughs> non-invasive expert. But, um, so the, in regard to the first question, when do I use a Fibrosure or a non-invasive test versus liver biopsy? Um, I'm probably a little spoiled being an academic center, and it's relatively easy for me to get a biopsy, so I still would tend to do that most often. Um, 
a few patients who, one, obviously the patient is very hesitant about getting a biopsy, or if um, I really have a pretty low suspicion, I just want something to kind of ease my mind a little bit to really tell me they have F0, like if I have somebody that I have a pretty good idea when they were infected, they haven't been infected very long, and they really kind of want to wait. Um, you know, again, I'm okay with non-invasive tests for telling me F0, F1, even the other end of the spectrum, I get a little more nervous and I'd like to see a biopsy that shows bridging fibrosis. In terms of validation of Fibrosure, I mean, they've been validated, but not in huge studies with huge numbers. Um, Fibroscan, certainly from Europe, probably has more data, and yet it's not FDA approved here. So um, you just have to be careful with the non-invasive measures, as I mentioned, especially if you have HIV co-infected patients. They can't be on atazanavir. That's going to give you a false Fibrosure. And the fibrosures have been compared to liver biopsy, but just one point, yeah. with zero being when they assumed the patient got hep C and they drew a line. Um, it's complicated, but <laughs> I wouldn't put... I sort, I sort of use it as a way to convince the patient to have a biopsy, saying if your fibrosure says F0, it's 80% correct. If it says F4, it's 80% correct. If it says one, two, three, it's about 30% correct. So if you're F0 and you want to wait, or if you're F4, you have to have a biopsy unless it's clinically obvious right. because the treatment duration is different. So um, there's a couple of questions. You must have sold telaprevir because why <laughs> would I use bisepravir? <laughs> and what are the clinical cost or ease of treatment that would make you choose one over the other? Okay. So there are no head-to-head -head trials, obviously. So if you look at the phase three data, the, the delta from the control arms is, is roughly similar. But I think in general, most people probably agree there's a few percentage points probably higher with telaprevir. So I think part of it is talking to the patients and talking about side effects of the two medications and how they're dosed. Um, a lot of patients like knowing I'm going to be taking 12 weeks of telaprevir and I know that's it. And it's a, you, you pretty much know what they're dealing with, at least from the telaprevir standpoint, right? up front, whereas bilsepivir, it changes based on how their response goes. And then, um, you know, we've occasionally used bilsepivir patients with eczema or already kind of have atopic dermatitis or have had other problems with rashes. There's not really great evidence that they're more likely to get a telaprevir rash as well, but if you talk about side effect profiles and something really bothers the patient about the side effect profile of telaprevir, um, then they may go to bilsepivir. Um, but, you know, we use probably more telaprevir, but that's mostly in a co-infection setting, which you'll hear about that later today, and that's largely related to drug interaction. And there's difference in side effects. I think yeah. at the beginning, telaprevir held the market, and now it's swinging the other way. The more you treat, the yeah. more side effects. And they're both, you know, three times a day. Both have food requirements. The requirement's a little more stringent with telaprevir. It has to be taken with a high-fat meal, um, 20 grams of fat, which sounds great to patients initially, but after a, a few months of that, they, they, they don't want any more ice cream or peanut butter or whatever. For breakfast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, why the lead-in with Bisepravir? So that was an initial strategy. The, the rationale behind it was to prevent resistance breakthrough, so, um, or to lessen the likelihood. So pegylated interferon ribavirin don't have a specific resistance mutation associated with them with the, where the protease inhibitors do. So the rationale was give them pegylated interferon ribavirin, bring the viral load down, there's less replication, less opportunity for developing bilsepivir resistance. And there was a signal, although it was very minimal in the SPRINT1 study that was published by Paul Kuo and Lancet, you know, I think the breakthrough rate was like, I don't remember, 9 versus 4 or 5%. So there's a few percentage difference, but it wasn't statistically significant. But they kind of um, 
stuck to their guns and it went the whole way through. What about the one log drop at four weeks? What about what? The one oh, log drop. The one log drop at four weeks. Um, so, yeah, you can, there's been subsequent data shown. That, so if patients don't have a one log drop after four weeks of their PEG, ribavirin, lead-in, that's certainly an indication that you have a patient who's poorly interferon responsive. Um, it's not a standard stopping criteria for bocepravir that you don't have a one log drop during lead-in. So, um, but there is additional data that then when you add in bocepravir, if you don't see, you know, if you see less than a three log drop after four weeks of bocepravir after having that less than one log drop during the first four weeks, essentially nobody responds. Um, so, I mean, and some other people use it as just a trial to see how they're going to tolerate peg ribavirin. And if somebody has horrible side effects, you could stop before you expose them to the protease. Can you do that with telaprevir? You could. You know, they, they looked at it in the realized study, I guess, in prior non-responders. They looked at a lead-in versus no, and it didn't make any difference. Um, if you have another reason for doing it, I, I mean, you could if you just really want to see tolerance but also really want to use telaprevir for some reason. I suppose you could do a lead-in. I don't think it's going to hurt anything necessarily. There are three IL-28 questions. Oy. Um, do you do it routinely? How expensive is it? Will Medi-Cal cover it? <laughs> and there's some really sensible, cost-conscious people yeah. in the audience. Um, and is it cost-effective? So it's about $300. Um, it, ours goes to LabCorp anyway, kind of through Monogram, probably. You could probably throw a stone and hit Monogram from here, I guess. But um, uh, we don't routinely do it in our co-infection clinic. We do it occasionally. Um, when do I do it? Um, if duration is going to make a big deal to the patient, I do think that's probably the most useful thing, actually, is you can say, you know, if you're a favorable allele, like a CC, you're much more likely to get response-guided therapy and shorten um, for mono-infected patients. Um, for me, it doesn't make, it doesn't generally help me make the decision of whether I'm going to treat them or not or recommend treatment or not, or whether I'm going to use a protease inhibitor for most people. Because again, if they're favorable, they're much more likely to get shortened. And there's still a delta, even if they're CCs, you know, approaching 90% with telaprevir versus about 65, 70% without. So I don't know what you do. Medi-Cal will cover it. Do you do it, Dr. Quo? While he's getting to himself to a microphone, <laughs> I'll say we do it in people who, if someone's a cirrhotic non-responder, and their CC, you might treat it because that you're saving yourself fifty to seventy-seven, seventy thousand dollars. If they're, you may say, well, it's important to know your IL-28 because it might make you decide whether you treat or not. Dr. Quo, um, we, we <laughs> used to do it a lot. About eighteen <laughs> months ago, we were, we were checking them on all these patients, uh, but as uh, th these new um, these new clinical trials are coming out. Um, we're not using it as much. I would say that I'm sending it more often to sort of pre-screen patients for uh, clinical trials. Uh, yeah. But uh, for patients that are not trial candidates, I'm not using it as much. I had one comment about the um, four-week lead-in response question, mm -hmm. uh, where um, it is sometimes it's helpful uh, for patients that um, you do the four-week lead-in, and uh, if they have uh, less than a one log drop after four weeks, their likelihood of responding to interferon is, is, is dismal. Yeah. Um, but if you add uh, the bacepivir, th they've got a, a 25 percent or 20, 25 to 30 percent chance of, of SVR if you add it. And so, yeah. you know, just because they're failing after that lead-in, uh, I wouldn't sort of abandon therapy. Uh, I would uh, I would say that yeah. uh, that's a good indication for um, bacepivir. <laughs> that there. they need it, yeah. Yeah. which you were pointing out. Yeah. Um, 
Neubogen procrit ribavirin interferon, I'm going to discuss, yeah. save you that one. Um, the cost of HIV protease inhibitors, is it true that telaprevir costs 4000 a week, bisoprevir 1100 a week, and are these acceptable from a public health <laughs> perspective? Good question. Um, so yeah, they're expensive. That's for sure. Um, you know, there have been some cost-effective analyses done um, that suggest they probably are cost-effective. There have been other ones that have tried to roll in, I think, from Stanford using IL-28B with um, a cost-effective analysis and, you know, essentially suggesting if they're CC and you get a 70, 65, 70% response rate with PEG-RIBA, is the cost justified to add in a protease number if you're just going to get another 10% or something like that? And so, you know, depending on who funds the study, they somewhat come down a little bit on different sides, but I'd say most have shown they're cost-effective, but close to the border of what you consider a cost-effective metric using, you know, $50,000 50, per quality, fifty to 100000 per quality. So I think if you have cirrhotic patients who are then decompensating, which is when they start to be hospitalized sure. over and over and over, then having a liver transplant. So if they die, that's cheap. <laughs> but if they get a liver transplant, that's expensive. And comparing uh, six months or a year of yeah. HCV therapy, if that rescues them from a liver transplant, that's very cost effective. But if someone has F0, right. as Dr. Weil said, they're going to live till the next set. Which IL may be as expensive. But which may be as, well, <laughs> if we know drug companies, they may be. Um, IL-28B with the newer therapies, uh, do you want to leave that for Dr. Osborne? Yeah. Do okay, we? well, yeah. now we're ready. If there aren't any other questions, we're ready for a break.